morning. The, the reading for today is um, Ruth chapter 4, verses 1 through 13. Listen now to the word of the Lord. Now Boaz had gone up to the gate and sat down there, and behold, the Redeemer of whom Boaz had spoken came by. So Boaz said, Turn aside, friend, sit down here. And he turned aside and sat down. And he took ten men of the elders of the city and said, Sit down here. So they sat down. Then he said to the Redeemer, Naomi, who has come back from the country of Moab, is selling the parcel of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. So I thought I would tell you of it and say, Buy it in the presence of those sitting here and in the presence of the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, redeem it. But if you will not, tell me that I may know, for there is no one besides you to redeem it, and I come after you. And he said, I will redeem it. Then Boaz said, The day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you also acquire Ruth the Moabite, the widow of the dead, in order to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance. Then the Redeemer said, I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I impair my own inheritance. Take my right of redemption yourself, for I cannot redeem it. Now this was the custom in former times in Israel concerning redeeming and exchanging. To confirm a transaction, the one drew, with, one drew off his sandal and gave it to the other, and this was the manner of attesting in Israel. So when the Redeemer said to Boaz, Buy it for yourself, he drew off his sandal. Then Boaz said to the elders and all the people, You are all witnesses this day that I have brought from the hand of Naomi all that belonged to Elimelech and all that belonged to Chilion and to Malon. Also Ruth the Moabite, the widow of Malon, I have bought to be my wife, to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance, that the name of the dead may not be cut off from among his brothers and from the gate of his native place. You are our witness this day. Then all the people who were at the gate and elders said, We are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your house like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the house of Israel. May you act worthily in Ephrath and be renowned in Bethlehem. And may your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah, because of the offspring that the Lord will give you by this young woman. So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife. This is the Lord, the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. The Lord be with you. Thank you. Welcome. Uh, we're continuing a study of the book of Ruth. And today, um, I wanted to uh, divide the fourth chapter uh, so we'll do the first part today, and then we'll do the second part uh, next time. Uh, please pray with me. Uh, Lord, thank you for uh, this day that you have made, and the opportunity again to gather uh, in your house to hear your word, to uh, meditate together upon uh, what you would have for us. Help us now in the hearing uh, to obey. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. So uh, last week I said that there was uh, no sex and no traditional romance uh, in our story, that it's more about the romance uh, between Ruth and Naomi than it is about the romance uh, between Ruth and Boaz. Uh, but still, you know, as we read the story, we want Ruth and Boaz to end up together, 
on the threshing floor under the cover of darkness. Ruth had made her intentions about marriage known to Boaz. And Boaz mentioned a potential problem with this other guy, but, that he, but he promised her that he would take care of the matter. And so we were kind of rooting for them to get together. And true to his word, as you heard, uh, probably not having slept very much the night before, if at all, Boaz gets to work to resolve the situation first thing in the morning, publicly, in the presence of a group of elders at the gate of the city and with plenty of other witnesses from their town. Uh, You might recall from last year's Lenten FG that the city gates uh, was not just a gate, but were these elaborate structures with rooms. It was a combination of a town hall, a city plaza, municipal court. It's where people met for social interactions, legal disputes, and business dealings. So it makes sense that this is where Boaz will want to complete his plans for uh, this land and marriage transaction. So early in the morning, Boaz gets there, and he waits, and he spots and then stops the relative that he had mentioned the night before to Ruth. Boaz also commands enough authority, apparently, to quickly gather 10 of the elders to sit and hear the case as witnesses. Then what follows is a little bit confusing and somewhat bizarre, involving the exchange of a sandal and more feet being uncovered. It's one of those passages that the rituals are so obscure, its meaning and history has been lost to us. And so when people look at this, they come up with all kinds of different translations and different kinds of interpretations. And it's quite all over the place. Um, But what's relatively clear is this. The nearest relative to Elimelech, who has died, gets first dibs on his land. So whoever is the closest relative to the family gets first dibs on the land because they want to keep the land within families as much as possible because the land was given as gifts by God to every family, and so you don't want the land being sold to non-family members. So it's, it's a great opportunity if land is available for sale and you get to keep it. Normally, you wouldn't get to keep it. Normally, you, as the closest relative, would buy the land or redeem the land and then give it back to them because, you know, it's your poor cousin who couldn't afford it. And so you have to, you're kind of obligated to help him out and give the land back to him. However, in this case, Naomi has no husband. She has no sons. And so once Naomi dies... This land is going to belong to whoever redeems it forever. So this relative may have to take Naomi, perhaps even marry her, and provide for her temporarily, but that's a small price to pay for this land, this valuable land, that he's going to have to pass on to his children. And so he immediately responds with, yes, I will redeem the land. Boaz knows this. That's how it's going to go. He knows that the land is attractive, and so he gets his rival thinking in terms of uh, financial gains and losses. And then he springs the little detail about Ruth. Now, we know that the entire city knows about Ruth and her character. We know how much Boaz admires Ruth, but he calls Ruth the Moabite, and mentions that she is the widow of the dead and that whoever marries her will have to pass on the name of her dead husband. 
to make her far less attractive than he thinks of her so that when he hears this in his calculation, the line's not going to sound so good. Ruth has not had any children, but she's still young enough, we know, to bear children, and that plays into his calculation as well. So he knows if he marries her and they have a child, that child is going to inherit the land. So he has to pay for the land and then spend all this money investing in it to grow crops and all of that, and then afterwards, it's all going to pass to Ruth's child. So he's not going to get anything out of it in the long term, and in fact, it's just going to be a series of losses for him in strictly financial terms. Boaz makes the situation look very, very bad. But he doesn't do it to, uh, to cheat his relative. In a way, he sets himself up. He sort of cheats himself because he's the one who's going to suffer the financial loss, perhaps significant loss, in choosing this course of action. Now, what's really interesting is that neither men are legally obligated to marry Ruth. Boaz says, you know, whoever buys this land has to marry Ruth, but that's not true. There's no law that says that has to happen. As I mentioned last time, the law required that the brother of a dead man is required to marry that, but neither of these men are brothers of the deceased. So I think what Boaz is doing here is that he's using the spirit of the law to apply social pressure, not legal duty, on his relative in front of the whole town. Right? No one has to marry Ruth, but how can you leave this poor widow, the spouse of your closest relative, in such a vulnerable position when you clearly have the means to redeem the land? So when the relative sees that it's a terrible financial investment and that it would be socially shameful for him not to marry Ruth along with redeeming the land, he saves face by passing on his rights to Boaz, who is eager to make the purchase. The law recognized that sometimes the nearest relative would not or could not redeem. So even if you wanted to redeem, it could be that you know, you're not in a position to do so. Remember Bethlehem had just gone through perhaps a decade-long famine, um, and so they're just recently only coming out you know, of, of that situation, and perhaps they've had a good harvest for the first time in, in a decade. And so maybe that's why this matter hasn't even been discussed uh, until now. So then Boaz makes it official by having the other man give Boaz his sandal, the ancient equivalent apparently of signing a contract in front of many witnesses. And then the witnesses gathered give hearty approval by giving this triple benediction. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your house like Rachel and Leah, who together build up the house of Israel. Um, may you act worthily in Ephrathah and be renowned in Bethlehem. And may your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore Judah because of the offspring that the Lord will give you by this young woman. Um, and then they're married. I want to make uh, an observation, an application, and a reflection uh, with you this morning. First, the observation. All the characters that we've met in Ruth so far, even the minor ones, have names. And names are, as you know, very important and serve a symbolic function uh, in this story, especially in this story. Naomi, my sweetness, wants to change her name to Mara Bitterness because of 
the, the bitterness of our life experiences. Elimelech, my God is king. He, he dies as if God is not around. Their sons, Malon and Kilion, sickly and dying. And again, they also die. Uh, Orpah, uh, whose name uh, is probably related to the, to the nape of the neck uh, because she turns her back uh, on Naomi. Boas's name means uh, in him is strength. Or if you're a Star Wars fan, you could translate that as the force is with him. That's a legitimate translation. Uh, and interestingly enough, the name Ruth is the one that we have the least understanding about. Uh, if you look at like those you know, baby naming websites, they'll tell you that Ruth means friend, but that, that's not true. Um, it's far from clear that that's, that's what it means. We have the word ruthless in English, which uh, means you know, uh, to be without mercy and compassion. Um, and believe it or not, if you look in the dictionary, the word Ruth does appear as a noun, as an archaic noun, uh, meaning um, a feeling of pity, distress, or grief. But neither of those words, Ruth and Ruthless, um, are connected to the name Ruth, uh, which we have uh, today. Uh, what I want to point out, though, is that everyone gets a name, and the name has a symbolic function. But in this chapter, this nearest relative, who is an important character, has a big role to play, he doesn't get a name. What you heard in the ESV translation, and in most or many other English translations, Boaz calls him friend. Friend. Come over here. Sit down. But friend is really a misleading uh, translation. In the Hebrew, that word friend, what he calls him, is Poloni Almoni, which is, uh, rhymes with Naomi, I guess, right? Poloni Almoni. Um, but it's a nonsensical rhyme, similar to the, to the naming rhymes of the two brothers, Kilion and Malan. Poloni Almoni appears in 1 Samuel 21, 3, where David is telling Ahimelech, the priest, about a secret plan, and he says this, let no one know anything of the matter about which I send you and with which I have charged you. I have made an appointment with the young men for such and such a place. Such and such a place. That's Poloni Almoni. Similarly, in 2 Kings 6.8, we find this sentence. Once when the king of Syria was warring against Israel, he took counsel with his servants saying, at such and such a place shall be my camp. Such and such place. Again, Almoni, uh, Poloni Almoni. It means such and such a place or so and so. This is Mr. So-and-so. It's Joe Schmo. Uh, I think it has a sense of when he says, when he addresses him as Poloni Almoni. It's not, he's not saying friend. I think it's closer to something like, yo, buddy. Right? That's, that's the impression that we're getting here. Now, Naomi and Boaz would certainly know his name, right? They're, they're his, his closest relative. But Boaz, or the narrator, deliberately uses this idiom as an intentional slight to diminish our respect for him. Poloni Almoni refused to maintain the name of Elimelech, the name of the dead, and so his name 
will likewise be forgotten. I think that's the point he's making. He could have redeemed the life, but chose his own comfort instead. Instead of making a personal sacrifice to help someone in need, he made the decision to protect his own assets, and by saving some money, he will have no part to play in God's redemptive plan. And so his name, his name is lost to us. It occurs to me you know, that this is the default mode of most people most of the time. Right? And isn't, isn't this the, how we act too often? Don't we like Poloni Almoni size up a situation, see how much it benefits us or hurts us, we do a quick cost analysis, and then choose accordingly? Not just financial matters, but even you know, ministry and ministry opportunities. We make decisions primarily, if not entirely, on personal, material benefits, convenience, and comfort. Our first thought is not the other, but ourselves. People might be encouraged to toss a little bit of their surplus or leftovers if the giving is made convenient and as easy as possible and the cause deemed worthy enough. But not many people are willing to choose to be inconvenienced, to sacrifice their money, their time, their sleep, their basic comfort for the sake of others. But Boaz tells us that to be remembered by God, to be used by God, we need to seek not our personal comforts and gains first, but that we need to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. A righteousness that exceeds the legality of the letter of the law. A higher righteousness that exceeds even the spirit of the law, I would say. To turn the other cheek, to give the extra quote, to walk that extra mile. Boaz challenges us to give more of ourselves than some leftover grain. You know, scholars uh, talk about God's preferential option for the poor, meaning that while God loves everyone, God has a special concern for the poor and the weak and the powerless. In similar fashion, I think God is also predisposed and responds to acts of this, this hyper-chesed, of this covenantal loyalty that we see in Boaz and Ruth and Naomi. When we... Uh, Pray unselfish prayers. I think God delights in answering those prayers. Because, you know, for people like Naomi and Ruth, because of their situation and status that is not of their own making, they need an advocate who is in a position to help them if they are ever going to flourish and not just survive day to day. They can't pull themselves up by their own bootstrings, no matter how hard they work. They're on the edges. And until someone extends and enlarges the borders of their own lives to include them, they are always going to remain outside. I know that the, uh, there are many complicated issues of institutional and systemic uh, racism and sexism and so on in this country, but you are still responsible you still have a personal responsibility for the opportunities that you are given for the people that God has placed in your life. 
the people that God brings into your life. It's when we act with this covenantal loving loyalty that our own names will get established by God. You have this opportunity every day to exercise this faithfulness every day. Every day you have people asking you for help. Every single day. Sometimes they're very, very small requests. Sometimes it's a large request. Sometimes they will speak those words. Sometimes it's an unspoken request that you have to figure out. Sometimes it just might be a prompting in your heart. Don't be a polony almoni, a phony baloney, looking out only for your own interest. Instead, as the Paul, Apostle Paul encourages us, let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have the mind of Christ in you who gave himself up as a servant. An application. Isn't it great when you have people in your life like Boaz who are so eager and so competent to help you, to serve you, even at a great cost to themselves? I know that you all have busy lives, and I'm so thankful that so many of you still have made the sacrifices, put the church and the ministry of this church and the members of this church ahead of yourself. Whether it's giving of your time on a Saturday to help prepare for the VBS, preparing meals for someone uh, who's sick, making sure that our bills are paid properly and on time. Boaz had his own business to take care of that morning. It's the end of the harvest. He's got to transport all that, you know, winnowed barley to market. But he keeps his promise to Ruth. Instead of waiting till the end of the day when he has a little spare time left, when he's taking care of all of his stuff first, he shows up early to take care of the promise he made to Ruth before anything else. You know, uh, this week, I had to take my car uh, into the dealer to have them uh, check out the engine because it's been making some some knocking noises. Uh, To be honest, I didn't hear anything. Uh, But as you know, my wife heard these noises. And so she also read that there was a uh, recall, there was a class action suit regarding the engine. I don't know how she finds out about these things. And so she told me I should take the car into the dealer. So I did. So I dropped the car off first thing in the morning. And the guy that's assigned to me is, let's just call him Larry. He tells me that it's going to take a couple of hours to diagnose and that he would call me uh, once they figure out what's wrong. So I go back home, back to work, and wait for him to call. He said a couple of hours, so I wait all morning, no call. I'm going to be patient, and I wait till after lunch, no call, so I call him back. I get the service desk, and they connect me to Larry, and I get his voicemail. I leave a message. I wait another two hours, still no call. I call the service desk again and explain the situation. They connect me to him again. Now I get his voicemail, but his voicemail is now full, so I can't even leave a message. Call the service desk again. Explain what happened. And, you know, they're just connecting me. They're just passing me off to someone else, to someone else, to someone else. Finally, I get a person online. And he tells me that Larry doesn't work there anymore. (laughs) 
I explained, I just talked to him this morning. <laughs> and they tell me, no, no, he's, he's been gone. And oh, and then it turns out that they misheard me. They thought I said Barry, not Larry. Oh, no, Larry still works here, but he's not around. I wait till five, call back. I mean, so I'm just, con- you know, right? Finally, I get a hold of him uh, around 4.35. And he tells me without apology that they're still diagnosing the car and that he should have an answer by five at the latest. So I said, fine. So I wait till five, no call. I wait till six, no call. I call him back, can't get hold of him. Again, I go through this whole cycle of chasing people and finally he tells me that they need to do more tests and they will call me tomorrow, but that probably I need a new engine. So then I ask him about, can I get a a loaner uh, in the meantime? And he says, there are none available. So that's how my day ended. I know such frustrations are probably common to all of you. Um, I can tell you that I, I was annoyed, uh, mostly because he just didn't call me back. Right? He said he'll take care of it. I mean, this is his job. It's not even like he's my friend. It's his job, right? <laughs> so the next day I call, uh, and of course, no one answers for the first half hour or so. Uh, eventually, I, I get through with somebody And again, it's just, I'm not getting any help. So finally, I insist on speaking to someone, you know, above him, a manager or somebody, and they said, well, you can talk to the the service director who uh, happens to be there. And shockingly, he takes my call. And he tells me that he's with another client, but that he would get back to me in 10 minutes. (laughs) I said, sure, I hang up. 10 minutes later, he calls me back. How about that? And I was just so shocked. And he tells me they're waiting for final approval, but that uh, I should come in, that he would have a a loaner car available for me. When I mentioned that there were none available, he says, well, I'll check, but if we don't, I'll make sure you get one from another company. We go to the the dealer, and my wife is standing in line while I'm parking the car. And I walk in, and there's a guy who comes up to me and says, can I help you? And it turns out to be the guy that I had just spoken on the phone, and he knows who I am now. So he gets my wife out of line. He grabs another guy, makes them take care of us right away. We get in the car, and we're out of there, like, so fast. And he assures me that they'll replace the engine. It's still under warranty by 200 miles. And, you know, the fix will be ready by Saturday. I mean, I was so shocked that he was so helpful. <laughs> As we were leaving, I I turned back to look for him because I wanted to thank him. Like, dude, thank you so much. You know, like, I I was so shocked. Um, It's so great having people who are capable, who have the authority, and who are willing to just, you know, make you a little bit of a priority. Someone who keeps their word. Someone who keeps their word. You know, it's it's not just good business practice. It's not even just basic human civility, I think. And I think, you know, in our culture today, it seems to me that it's even more important for us to keep our promises to one another. That that our words matter. That when we make the smallest of promises to one another, that we keep that word. When you say something as simple as, you know, I'll call you back in an hour, that you call back within the hour. That if you can't text Or if you can't call, you know, you can send a quick text saying, hey, I'm sorry, I'm running late, or something. Again, I understand sometimes you're busy, or sometimes you genuinely forget to call back. 
But if you forget regularly, that's not forgetting. That's just, that's just rude. You've gotten into, you know, you just don't care. And I'm not even talking about the kind of sacrifices that Bo has made here. You know, because he had to respond with a big, life-changing request. I'm just talking about responding to basic requests that we get every day in the form of emails and texts. I was going to say voicemail, but I know nobody calls, right? Just, just showing up on time when you say you're going to show up on time. I know it's going to sound like I'm just, it's a pet peeve or something, but it's not. I think when we make a promise, when we give a word to one another, that we keep that word, right? I think it's not unreasonable to expect if you get an email saying that you're asked of something, that you respond with a, in, a, in a timely manner. That, that's being faithful to one another. Now, you know, I'm guilty of not doing that as well. You know, I get lots of requests during the day, texts and emails, and sometimes I get careless about responding. Sometimes it's, it's a favor or an invitation, uh, a request to do something, and sometimes I don't have a good answer. Sometimes it's not clear if I'm supposed to respond, like I never... I never quite know what the protocol is to some of these uh, things I get. And sometimes, you know, it just requires more thought and I need some days to kind of sift through before I respond. And sometimes I know, you know, I'm just playing tired or swamped with other work. Um, and I know sometimes you've got sick kids and other things in life that intrudes upon you to make it difficult to respond faithfully and quickly. But Bolus's life suggests to me that we have a responsibility to be faithful to one another in responding with help to think about others first ahead of ourselves. Not just about these big requests, but in every promise we make to one another that we put others ahead of our own comforts and convenience when someone asks us to do something or for something that we answer it quickly and that we keep our word. Third, uh, a reflection. You know, in verse 1, we get what looks like another coincidence. Boaz is waiting at the city gate, and behold, the redeemer that Boaz was talking about comes by. That word, behold, is a translation of the Hebrew, hine. So, a little word study here. Hine is a very common word in the Hebrew Bible, and it has multiple meanings and gets translated in, a, in a multiple ways. Uh, but it often serves as an indicator of an unexpected surprise. And it's telling us, hey, pay extra attention here. According to one scholar, Hene is the Hebrew equivalent of our modern texting OMG. Okay? Now, we've actually seen this word twice already. In chapter 2, you remember, Ruth just happened to find herself working in the field of Boaz. And she just happened to be there when he comes by, Ruth 2.4. And behold, OMG, Hene, Boaz came from Bethlehem, right? It just happened that he shows up when she's there. And last week during the encounter on the threshing floor, remember? Boaz was dozing off and at midnight he startled awake. Ruth 3.8, at midnight the man was startled and turned over and behold... OMG, Hine, a woman lay at his feet, right? So it's this like, whoa, surprise, pay attention here. It just so happened. That's Hine. It looks like chance, 
He just happened to be passing by. But it's an indicator that God is behind the scenes. That's the behold. Hine points us toward God's involvement in the actions and in the events of our lives and in the lives of other people. So, you know, I thought in that sense, you know, OMG is a great equivalent for Hine because OMG, oh my God, right? It's actually literally God, right? It's, it's, a, it's a deeply theologically meaningful exclamation. OMG, Hine. Again, we see God working providentially, concurrently with people in what appears to be random chance. God works with Ruth's midnight initiative, with Boaz's early morning eager faithfulness, as well as with unnamed Poloni Almoni's rejection, and with all these witnesses and elders of the community to fulfill God's perfect will, not only of saving and restoring a fullness to Naomi, not only of preserving Elimelech's family name, not only of including Ruth into the household of faith, but as we'll see next time, of redeeming all of humanity, of you and me, through a child who is going to be born. Ruth is a much bigger story than anyone had imagined. Did this Hineidus behold? He just happened to, I mean, no one knew the importance of that moment. But we're told to, to pay attention to that moment. So I, I think it's a reminder to me to pay attention. Right? I think occasionally you will have truly and obviously miraculous or supernatural encounters with God in your life. But I think most of the time, most of us will experience God's work in a hidden way, similar to what's going on here. And it's only in hindsight that as you look back, you might be able to see how God arranged the events and the people in your life that turned out to be so decisive to where you are today. I know that when I look back on my life, I can see a number of these pivotal moments where at the time it didn't seem to make sense or it just seemed like chance. But I can see now as I look back, these moments, these hene, these OMG moments, where God turned me in a certain way so that I could be here with you today. So maybe when you look back on your life, you can see how God has brought you to this point today in your life. Now, I want you to be careful here. I'm not suggesting to look back and reminisce about your life and think, wow, I'm so successful now, and this is how God made me so successful. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm thinking about where you are now. Think about how and why God might have brought you to where you are today how your situation, your position, your status, your resources at this moment in life, how all of that might be used to help someone in your life right now. Maybe all that's preceded your life to this moment is so that you can reach out to someone like Ruth or Naomi in your life. Maybe this is one of those Hine moments in your life. Whom can you help? Who are the people in your life that is asking you for some aid? That's not just somebody who needs help. That's God telling you, here's what I want you to do. 
Maybe the next time you think or say or type OMG, maybe that's God in that moment right there. Let's pray together. God, we thank you for the example of Boaz and Ruth and Naomi, for their faithfulness, for their loyalty to one another. And God, we ask that we would be a people that are faithful to one another, that sacrifice for one another, that keep our word for one another. Help us to recognize that all the blessings that we have, all that you have given to us right now, is so that we might participate in your work of bringing healing and blessing to others. Help us to live as a faithful, giving people so that our names will be remembered in your book of life. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.